Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, joining you all the way from Colorado in the United States. As usual, I'm in my garage uh, and it's it's springtime here, so you never know if it's going to be 80 degrees and sunny or snowing. Today, it happens to be kind of nice, <laughs> so I'm actually uh, not shivering in my garage for a change, which is nice. And, you know, we're all kind of get ex- getting excited for the warm weather and hopping onto our bikes and getting some long miles. And I imagine more than more than one of you out there is thinking about buying a new bike. And that got me to thinking about, you know, what what is the modern bike? What are you actually buying when you go out of the store and you pick out your new bike? What is it doing for you that your last bike didn't do? And what are we going to see in the future uh, that's going to change the the course of bicycle technology? So... On the phone today, I have a few guests, actually, all from Cervelo. Uh, so I have Maria Benson, who is the Director of Product Management, Scott Roy, who is the Engineering Manager, and Robert Pike, who is the Senior Mechanical Designer, all at Cervelo Bicycles. And Cervelo uh, has been sort of on the pointy end of a lot of development. So I wanted to speak to them to see what are we what are we looking at when we're looking at the modern road bike and what's the future? Uh, to all of you, hello. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Hi, Dan. Let's let's dive in. Um, the you know, like I said, Cervelo has a very long history of being at the the pointy end of bicycle technology, and a lot of that, you know, Gerard Vrooman was involved in sort of uh, re-evaluating uh, what the bike can be and what it can do. Talk a bit about how Cervelo has developed its R and D processes over the years, and what sets it apart from the competition in that regard. And I think Scott, you're going to lead off with this one, right? Um, I think you you touched on it um, right from the start. Is we the company kind of started as a engineering experiment right it was an it was an engineering uh phd with with phil and gerard um and i think that that dna is has has always been with us and has stayed with us we're not um we're not beholden to necessarily market trends um we 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 generally look at what a problem statement is before we look at um, how we can backfill a, a, a need in a market that maybe is a, a hole that marketing tells us. Um, it's if we look at the Aspera, that wasn't we need to get into gravel necessarily. It was we were already riding gravel bikes. We were riding the our old R3s with with tires maxed out that weren't necessarily um, ISO legal, but we were doing it, so it was fine on the back roads in northern Ontario. And um, we kind of all stopped and were like, hey, well, this is this is something that we could. If we all enjoy doing this, then then there's no reason that other people can't enjoy going fast. So it's truly we we always 
kind of start with what what problem are we trying to solve and and what solution can we get to that actually benefits not just us but the industry as a whole and move the industry forward that as well as our constant support of of pro level racing um from a international uci um yumbo visma level to to national levels it's always at the forefront of product development so we have to our our users aren't necessarily just the pros but they are we have to make you know um products that satisfy their needs and we've been doing that for for longer than i've been here and almost longer than robert's been here and robert's been with the company 11 years i think now sorry 14 so um i can let robert take over on on how it kind of fanned out over those years and why we are where we are with with a kind of the tube shaped library that we've continually developed and and the decades of tunnel data that we have can you just really before robert before we jump in would you mind just giving us a sense of physically what the r&d process is like i mean you you mentioned wind tunnel i mean do you have one on site do you have a testing facility uh, what does that r&d process look like sure um it, we don't have one on site unfortunately uh i not i don't know i mean as two brands that I know off the top of my head that do. Um, we've, for the first 11 years, we used to get LSWT. Um, and then just recently we, we commissioned a tunnel, um, f- not necessarily a private tunnel, but a tunnel that was was closer to us, uh, RWDI, which we've put a lot of time and effort into, into getting up to, up to the level that we require. Um, and it's turned into a really great investment for us because uh, the the knowledge base that they have isn't necessarily bicycle related. So we also get another input um, from a technical aspect of, of, of things that we might not necessarily see. So we do have access to a tunnel and we go quite regularly. We also have um, uh, the usual CFD software that we all run. Um, there's no, um, in broad strokes, there's no design that comes from a design, industrial design necessarily. And we have to, um, achieve targets that may not be realistic to the designer's um, uh, aesthetic intent for the bike. Uh, it's a very collaborative effort. So um, Maria will, will sit down with us from the, from what she expects from the product side. The ID guys will sit with the engineers and we all have this roundtable discussion, not necessarily a roundtable, but this open discussion at the beginning of a project of <clears throat> how we can solve that problem. Um, if that's taking the the new R5, if that's um, feedback we've received from customers and the team that we need to make a, a slight tweak to how the bike feels, then that's something that we we then, I'll present that data to the industrial design team and say, hey, look, this is where we need to maybe take some, take some meat out of the tube shape so that we can achieve that goal from performance aspect. Um, and then they go away with those um, those targets and then come back and say, Hey, look, this is what we think. These are a couple of options. What's best for you guys. Um, and then, it, then it follows the usual development course that I think most, most brands do where, you know, you, you cut steel, get samples, um, extensive ride testing, both from, uh, internally and externally. So we try and get the team involved really early on. If it is a bike, that the team will use, um, uh, input that and do that feedback loop where we get whatever um, negative or positive criticisms, um, and then go from there. Robert, you, uh, you, you've been there for a good long while and, and it sounds like, you know, you sort of have seen the, the progression of, of technology and, and R and D, you know, 
and it seems like, you know, in our modern era, there's always something new coming out. There's always something fresh, but it's, it's, it lately has seemed to be a lot of just small incremental gains. Um, has the general shape and function of a bicycle hit its peak? I mean, is it going to remain fairly constant as it has for the last several years? I mean, what, what's keeping the bike from changing dramatically like it did when, you know, Cervelo and, and, and all these other brands sort of went from the round tube shapes to all these aerodynamic shapes and the bikes just changed so dramatically. And now we're sort of seeing it in these small iterations for this extended period of time. What's, what's causing that, not stall exactly, but sort of this consistency now that we have hit the aerodynamic peak, as it were? The approach has evolved. And I've, you know, I mentioned I've been with Cervelo. If I want to mention that I've you know, 14 years. So I was, I want to sort of put this on the side here, um, that I was with the company when it was still owned by Phil and Gerard. And we were all part of room and white design. In fact, up until just a year or so ago, when that sort of ended. And I was there during the time that we were bought by Pawn. And, you know, I've seen comments, just, I'll get, I'll get back to your question, but I've seen some comments, um, you know, online every once in a while, oh, the bikes are not the same since Broom and White, since Phil and Gerard are not part of it. And I just sort of wanted to do it, take this opportunity to address that a little bit and say that, you know, I, I have been there, uh, not since the very, very beginning, but certainly long enough to be part of the company uh, when it was Phil and Gerard. And, you know, I was trained or brought into the, the mindset of Cervelo Engineering and the Cervelo uh, approach to what a bicycle means to a racer and, 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 and rider. And even though, you know, you asked um, how our company has evolved its engineering practices, you know, one thing that has happened is, is we, even though the people have changed in engineering and the ownership of the company has evolved over the years, the the mindset has been consistent i'm really proud and that's why i want to say this i'm really proud to see that that the excellence that was part that was what Cervelo was based on back in the day is still there today and with newer people the the um the drive for excellence is still there and you know the Cervelo culture we refer to it uh, inside our company our Cervelo culture is a is a huge part of it as well as far as um technology and aerodynamics specifically. Um, I know there's been sort of this thought, this concept that, you know, we're, we're at the end of what we can do aerodynamically with a bicycle. I mean, I've been asked by people outside of the industry, well, you know, the bike was, how, how can you keep developing bike technology? It's, you know, it was, the bike was, in, the modern bicycle was invented, whatever, 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, how can you keep developing new technology for bikes? And it's a good question, but there's always opportunities. And we, we are constantly, everybody, we, we in the industry are constantly seeing opportunities for improvement. Aerodynamically, um, yes, we, when, when I first started with Cervelo, I've been a significant part of the tunnel team. I run the tunnel uh, project team now um, for 10 years. And, you know, back in the day when, when Bruce, uh, Phil and Gerard um, sort of helped to, developed the next aero road bike it was really just we had the frame and the fork to to work with and so technologies were put towards that and and tube shapes have evolved from um focusing just on on the aerodynamics 
and perhaps sacrificing a little bit of ride quality. And, you know, the whole thing about aero, aerodynamic bikes are harsh and, and uncomfortable and not stiff. So the, so the aerodynamics has evolved from just aero to aero and structural and weight and, 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 and compliance and comfort all combined. And it becomes part of the, the whole recipe. And, you know, we've, we still see gains, regular gains. And, and now instead of just working on the frame and the fork, for example, we're working on integration of all these, all the various parts, as well as integration of components that, that are not necessarily our, our manufacturer, like drivetrain, for example, and brakes. And the new, new technology, new components, new parts that come from other companies that we integrate into our designs also brings new opportunities for aerodynamic optimization with that, with that. So it's, um, there's, there's always opportunities. And then we, uh, we are also seeing new opportunities or working with new opportunities for um, testing methods. And there's, there's a couple of very specific that we're looking at right now. And it's very exciting to us um, that really is changing our approach and our um, understanding of how, how testing and how analysis uh, should be done. And so there's much more to come from that. And we're very excited about that. And it seems to fit with an overall narrative that I'm seeing from other companies as well, that, you know, it's the, the design has, the design goals have changed from just making a fast frame and fork to more of, we're going to take all of these disparate parts that in the past have been, you know, very separate things like cockpits and, and seats and seat posts, and we're going to integrate it as a system. Uh, and it seems like, you know, Cervelo has, has in a lot of ways led the way on that with things like integration and, and, uh, you know, one piece cockpits and things like that. Um, is that, is that, am I on, on track with that? Or is that, you know, anti antithetical to your design ethos? No, that's exactly true. And I, you know, as much as I like to think that Cervelo uh, was a leader in that, and I think we are, um, other companies have been doing a fantastic, a fantastic job as well um, in basically creating the system that again, like I said, is not only aerodynamically, um, beneficial, but, um, the system of, of stiffness and weight and, and comfort and ride quality is, is part, part of that system as well as the system of, of the various parts that we're incorporating. So, I mean, just in a general sense, before we take a break here, um, you know, we often hear brands come out with a new product and they say, Oh, this is a game changer. It'll save you an eighth of a quarter of a watt, you know, like, is that the, is that the immediate future for bikes? I mean, we're just looking at these incremental gains or are we, are we on the cusp of something completely new and different? I mean, I think, I think there is a thirst for something that's the next step, right. And we're sort of in the, the incremental gains right now. Um, are we on the cusp of something new? Yes and no. I mean, incremental gains have been something that we've been dealing with, or, or that's been the, the, uh, the approach and the result as long as I've been in the business and before that, I mean, you know, we, in the tunnel, we measure our results generally in grams of, of drag. Um, and, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we, if we saw 30 grams improvement in a new bike design, that was fantastic. More is better, of course. Well, we're still seeing that sometimes, you know, depending on what our, our design is or what our evolution of a particular brand is, we, or a particular uh, model is, We'll go, we'll see something a bit smaller because it's a more modest approach. And other times we'll do a full on aero development study of multiple years. And well, we're always doing that, but sometimes you see the fruit of that. And um, then we have more significant gains. And, and 
in some ways, because of the the system approach and the integration of, of more components and wheels and bars and everything, we're seeing much larger gains for, for a new bike than we used to. Not always. I mean, it's definitely challenging and it's not, I'm not saying it's easier, it's harder, but we're, but we're just you know, working harder at it to, to see these gains. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we get back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the physical properties of a bike, uh, particularly carbon and, and which has been sort of the miracle, uh, material for many years now. I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, and, and, you know, basically what, what we as common people, common folk riders, not just the pros, should be riding. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come right back. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinawa, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. We are back with the Ruler Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, still here in Colorado, joined by some uh, several folks from Cervelo. Uh, and uh, we've got Maria Benson, Scott Roy, and Robert Pike, all from Cervelo Bicycles. And we're chatting about the modern road bike uh, and, and what makes a modern bike modern. Uh, and I think, you know, for a lot of people who are seasoned cyclists and just coming into the sport, you know, that whole conversation always starts with carbon, you know, the carbon bike, the carbon frame, the carbon fork, the carbon seat post, the carbon cockpit, it's all about carbon. And I guess my question for you folks, and and I'll let you all decide who should answer this, uh, is there life after carbon? Uh, is, is carbon going to remain the primary high-end performance material for the foreseeable future? I'll field this one, uh, Dan. Uh, it's Scott here. Um, I think it's. I think we've uh, the last two years, notwithstanding, um, it's, that's been a bit of a, a speed bump in the road for for um, everything other than just trying to sell bikes. Um, I think there's uh i think generally speaking the industry the bicycle industry needs to needs to take a step back and and have a good hard look at itself about its environmental impact with 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 bikes um carbon i i came from aerospace uh i don't necessarily yeah i mean you can't predict the future but at this point in time i, I don't see um a material uh that has the right that's cost effective quote unquote um per whatever the performance metric needs to be either weight or stiffness or aero um that can match composite i won't say carbon i'll say composite materials at this point in time um i think we can do um wonderful things with alloy bikes at the moment i think there's there's uh this is again i speak prior to the last two years but i think there's there's a couple of interesting companies in Europe as well that are exploring magnesium again. And I know time is a flat circle and we've been down this route, but I think there's, um, I think maybe technology is, is not just how good the technology is, but it's also, is it, is there a need for it? And is the timing correct? So maybe it is now that we, we re-explore, um, materials other than composites. Um, 
for composites specifically, I think there's um, a big push. If you look in the aerospace industry at the moment, a big push for for greener um, processes to produce carbon um, and where that raw material comes from, and then how that raw material is is processed, and then what happens at the end of that life cycle. And I think the cycling industry hasn't done a very good job of that um, ever. Um, so I think the onus will be on on us and and the rest of the brands out here to look at how that impacts um even from small things from like trying to reduce as, uh, we've got a thing going where we're trying to reduce as, as much plastics single-use plastics in our in our packaging as possible um but even then that's not an easy and it might seem like an easy step but it's not an easy step from factory to door um but um yeah there's there's uh, people talk about like can can flax be a material and at this point in time that the stiffness i think maybe for for something like a flat bar commuter bike or a kid's strider or something like that yes absolutely but then an alloy frame is is better for the environment and it's not infinitely recyclable but it's easier to do so um i think there's a a proper deep dive that needs to happen from an industry perspective on on where where we see um the next not necessarily performance step but where we see the next step just in general for cycling for what the raw material needs to be and how we process that raw material as well yeah and that's an important point i mean just it's not just a matter of the performance of the the material but also the impact of it uh, throughout its life cycle right and then i think we're seeing more awareness of that across the board not just in the bike industry but you know the bike industry as as an industry that has presented itself as an environmentally friendly option hasn't always been <laughs> so environmentally friendly. Yeah. 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 And it, it always comes down to being the less bad choice. Right. And I think in, in every, in every comparison of transportation at this point, the bicycle is still easily the less bad choice, but that shouldn't let us off the hook. Right. Exactly. You had one more thing to say about uh, sort of the limits of what we can do to essentially improve uh, what the modern bike is and, and, you know, what, what is, what is holding us back essentially? UCI, essentially. Um, a lot of, a lot of our design is beholden to, to obviously, like I mentioned, supporting the proteins. And I think that, um, there's, uh, so I'm, I'm part of, uh, the, one of the members at WFSGI and that's a, um, sporting federation group that, uh, it kind of speaks for, um, not, not just bicycle brands. It's, a, it's any sporting goods and shoes or swimwear or anything, but in our instance for the bikes, uh, is, is kind of our group voice, um, to the UCI. Um, and the last five years I've been there, we've, we've been trying to, um, put pressure on and work with the UCI to, to simplify the rules, not necessarily, um, remove them completely or end up, um, down the road of, of, uh, where we were with the P5X or tri bikes, which is fine. I think there's a there's a distinct case for that, and I think it's we we did that. Um, and I don't necessarily think that those bikes need to be in the pro peloton, but I think um, it is it is always good to work within um, a set of rules and boundaries. And I think it, it it does push innovation in a way, but it's always good to to listen to the industry where we're like, okay, we're getting to we're getting to a bit of a point where it's getting restrictive. Let's let's open some things up. And if you follow the rules, um, the the removal of the st- distinct TT categories in the compensation triangles, it's opened up to you know normal bikes. Gave us an opportunity on the S5, 
um, or any other bike for that matter. Um, and I think things like that is is where the industry works well with the UCI and the UCI works well with us where we can say, hey, look, collectively we're getting to, we're, we're not, it's not a dead stop, but we're getting to a point where we need to, let's, let's not remove the rules, but work out a way of relaxing them. So it gives us another little gray area to work within. And that's, and that's um, any type of competitive sport that has a governing body. You work within the gray area of the rules. You don't necessarily follow the rules completely, but yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that kind of leads me to my, my next question, which is, you know, there is a, a pretty vast gulf between, you know, the technology that goes into what the pros are riding and should be riding and designs that make sense for everyday riders, you know, and, and I think everyday riders, you know, more than more often than not, they'll, they'll end up riding a bike that perhaps isn't suited to them because they see the pros riding it. What advantages can you lay out for those everyday riders to consider other bikes that may not be as, you know, glamorous as the S5 that Walt Van Aert's riding, uh, but likely suits their needs better. I mean, should they be on endurance bikes and how do you make endurance bikes look sexier to them? You know, I mean, Walt was on it just this weekend, but, um, fundamentally we need to have bike shops, not, not even our bike shops, but bike shops and bike mechanics and fitters educate customers it the the two most important things and it doesn't matter how the bike looks the two most important things are are you comfortable on the bike do you fit the bike is are you stack and reach numbers and we harped on about this for a decade um and the the fit of the bike and then the geometry of the bike how the bike handles and how the bike rides is it a fast is it snappy or is it more relaxed and is it more compliant um the two aren't necessarily uh, directly related, but they they can be. So your fit on the bike can impact where your weight is and how the bike handles. But also, it, it, you need to be able to be comfortable on the bike. So I think that you're right. A lot of people try and squeeze on bikes that aren't necessarily they're not the most comfortable on. And when you're not comfortable, I don't think you. I mean, even if you we we look at the racing side of this if you're not comfortable on the bike you're not confident on the bike you're not going to be as fast on the bike as you can be but if you remove the 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 racing aspect of that just being comfortable and confident on the bike gives you so much more desire to continue riding every second day or every third day and then and going further and i think that it isn't necessarily that the bikes that the pros use um uh correct it's that i don't think they're picking the right one so for, for our instance we've got um a quiver of bikes where you you look at what um yumbo raced at Bay this weekend and that is our modern road bike that's not necessarily an s5 um or you look at the new r5 now and it's it is a incredibly light and incredibly stiff bike but it's still compliant and it's still comfortable and if you're fit properly to that bike it's it's you can easily do 200 Ks on it and, and not be beat up. Do you feel like those bikes, I mean, the race bikes that the pros are using and the bikes that people should be on every day, do you feel like those are coming closer together? Because for so long that, that gulf was pretty vast and now maybe it's not as, as much. Absolutely. We're almost at not a golden age of cycling, but we're coming to a point where you said everything is, is getting closer where it's, Robert mentioned it before, where we're like, there's, there's other factors that we need to design for for the pros as well. And it's not just how fast it is in a tunnel or how stiff it is. It's, it's how long can they, it's how, how fundamentally every, every race is how fresh you are, how fresh you can be 
at the sprint, if it's a sprint. Um, the, the fresher you are and the more energy you have, the, the more likely you are you're going to win. So um, it, uh, the, the analogy I've used is with with kind of 911s because I'm a big car nut. But if you look at a 911 from 20 years ago, they, they weren't very easy to live with every day. And you look at a brand new 911 and you can go to the grocery store with it and then you can take it to Laguna Seca and, and do a hot lap on it. And it's the same vehicle. So I think you can you can tie that into where the bikes are now. You can do long long hours on an r5 and then you can take it to a crit race or, a, or an s5 and do the same thing so um over to maria if she's got uh, just a quick note to our all right to our listeners uh maria had some audio issues which is why you haven't heard from her yet um maria did you want to jump in on on uh, what scott was just talking about yeah i i think um i kind of pare it down to three distinct things um one is fit one is capability and the other is technology on what makes a modern bike a modern bike. Um, and Scott really nailed it with the geometry part of it. You know, it used to be that you get as long and low as you can. <clears throat> and if you can sustain that, you can be fast. But I think we've come to the reality that if your body is in a natural, more comfortable position um, over a long term, you're going to be faster. Um, and the capability side of it. Um, comes with how we design the bikes right so the reality is road bikes are probably more capable than most people think you know that's how gravel got started that we just started taking dirt roads on our road bikes um and there's a lot of interest um in the market specifically on you know bikes that can do more than one thing so even though we make a very distinct point to design bikes for very specific use cases like uh, S5R5, P5 that are very specified for, you know, pro tour level, uh, riders, they are still very capable bikes for other things. Um, and that, I think that's kind of what Scotty was getting at. You know, you can get, let's say a 30, 32 millimeter tire in an S5. And if you want to take it on a gravel road, you can, it's, it's very capable to do that. Um, and I think from the market standpoint, there's kind of a hunger for, um, you know, you don't have to have five different bikes in order to do all of the different things that you're interested in doing. Um, and then from a technology standpoint, um, this is where uh, not only we as, uh, you know, bicycle manufacturers can introduce new and interesting things to change the way we ride or enhance them. It's also what other suppliers are doing, you know, most specifically drivetrain. Um, so you have connectivity with electronic drivetrains, um, you know, you can track your bike if it gets stolen. Like these are all things that are, are making, um, every rider's experience, uh, better and better, um, as we develop new technology. I mean, in a general sense, has it made your life as a product manager, uh, more difficult to sort of say, okay, we have to make this bike be an awesome sprinting bike, but also do everything. (laughs) Yeah, it, it does. Um, and we try to, um, you know, set parameters for each project so that we don't uh, get too far down a rabbit hole. Um, so, you know, there there's uh, higher priority goals with each project and lower priority goals. And you take a bike like S5 where it, it literally needs to be the fastest bike, even if it's only by a second or two, um, compared to Caledonia. Um, that is very capable, but also extremely, you know, very fast. Um, they're two very different projects. Um, but if, 
an everyday rider chose one or the other, they're going to be able to do very similar things on them. Generally speaking, it sounds like there's there's sort of a, an agreement here that the modern road bike uh, has to do a lot more than it ever did before. Uh, and, and I think we're in that era of, of refinement because that stated goal has sort of honed itself to a point in a sense. You know, we started very broad, right? And you had to have several bikes to do everything that you needed to have done. And now we're getting to a point where every bike has to have certain things that it can do well, which includes going fast and being comfortable and being capable. Does that sound like a good summary of what we've talked about today? Yeah, I think you nailed it. Point for me. Yes. Uh, I, I thank you guys uh, for, for joining me. I know it's tricky with, with a lot of people chiming in and some audio issues, but I appreciate it. It was a, an interesting conversation to talk about you know where we've been, where we're going, and, and what's next. And it's really interesting to me, especially what Scott said uh, about how environmental impacts are now starting to factor into decisions being made at the design level. That's very cool to me. Reach out on Instagram uh, to Cervello. You can always reach me on social media, either at on Twitter, at SlowGuyFastRide, or on Instagram, at SlowGuyOnTheFastRide, because Instagram gives me extra letters. That's why I like them. Uh, and of course, you can reach out to at Ruler Magazine on all the social media handles. Uh, and of course, Ruler.cc. Please do reach out with questions. Always happy to answer them and always happy to pester these folks whenever I can. So if you have questions for them, you can always reach out to me as well. Uh, Maria, Robert, and Scott, thank you for joining me today. And for those of you listening, thank you for listening. And we will catch you on the next episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.